The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for you. Bless us this morning by your word. Lord, pray that you would use your servant who is unworthy, wholly unworthy, but worthy by the blood of Christ. Use your servant to share with us your message this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I've shared this story before, but it is such a pivotal story in my life. It was one of those wake-up call moments. Several years ago, my wife and I had planned on a date night, and the time had come for the date night, and I was kind of in a crabby and irritable mood. I'm sure this never happens to you, but I was just kind of quiet because if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? So, so we're driving, uh, and we decided to go to this restaurant up by UWGB on Nicolay Drive, and it overlooked the bay, and we went there um, because we had a coupon. That's how we choose all the restaurants we go to. And we get there, and, and we walk in, and this restaurant is just very outdated, kind of nasty, but we have a coupon, so we stay, and they sit us down next to the window. It's overlooking the bay, and the sun is, is blazing in, and for many of us, we would think, oh, how beautiful. We get to sit and watch the sunset, but I'm sitting there thinking, this sun is giving me a headache, but we have a coupon, so we stay there. Get the menus. We're looking at the menu. Waiter comes to the table next to us, and he asks the people, how is everything? And the man says, this chicken noodle soup is so salty. And the waiter, no joke, said, it gets like that after a couple of days. We stayed because we had a coupon. (laughs) And we're looking at the menu, and we order, and then they bring out the bread, and they bring out hard rolls. Who likes hard rolls? Like, why would you trade that for warm, soft rolls that you can melt your butter in? I don't know who would. Maybe it's you. Repent. Turn to the lights. Soft rolls. It's where it's at. So there I am, this pile of frustration. You can imagine what a joyful date night this was. But we're there, and we're eating our hard rolls. And I remember my wife looking at me through tears in her eyes and saying, I just want to be cherished. You know, love looks so much easier in movies, doesn't it? In movies, people fall in love and they stay in love and they have these happy and wonderful relationships because they are in love and it's something that they can't even control. They're just in love. And so they're on cloud nine their entire life married to this person. But if you have been married for more than a day, you know that loving somebody and cherishing somebody It's hard work. It takes intentionality. It takes discipline. It takes planning. It means you prepare to to serve the other person, to tell the other person how much you love them through little love letters or whatever it might be. 
to help them in whatever way possible, to, to make sure that even in your own heart, you are cherishing them and appreciating them. Love and cherishing each other takes hard work. This was my wake-up call, that cherishing doesn't just, we don't drift into cherishing one another. It is something that we have to pursue with our whole heart and with great intentionality. You know, in many ways, the same is true of our relationship with God. Some of you may be here and you say, I remember the day when I fell in love with God and it was so great I could hardly sleep. The joy was just overwhelming. But now I feel far from him. I felt that. I feel it more than I would like to admit. Maybe you feel that. Well, today Jesus is going to remind us that our cherishing of God and a growing love for God is not something that we simply drift into. Just as in marriage, our love for God is something that must be cultivated. It is something that takes effort and intentionality. It's something that must be nourished through things that Christians call spiritual disciplines. If you would, please open up to Matthew chapter 6. It is page 811 in the Red Bible. It is page 1026. I'm sorry, it's page 811 in the Children's Bible, page 1026 in the Red Bible. Today we are, did I mess that up again? I probably did. The page numbers are right there. There you go. Today we are continuing our summer series covering Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It is a sermon that Jesus gave early in his ministry. He had hordes of people following him around, and so he sat up on a mountainside and he began to teach them. This is the most famous sermon in human history, and in it, Jesus is revealing to them what the kingdom of God is like, the glorious kingdom of God, and how it contrasts to the kingdom of men. Today, Jesus focuses in on our religious practices, or what we call spiritual disciplines. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to skip to verse 16 through 18. In verse 7 through 15, Jesus goes on this tangent that we call the Lord's Prayer. Pretty important. We'll get back to that next week, but we're going to cover those verses today. And as we look at this passage, just one more note as we dig in. Verse 1 is really a summary statement of what Jesus is trying to teach us today. And then the rest of the verses is Jesus applying it to different spiritual disciplines in our life. So let's read together Matthew chapter 6, and we'll start with verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door 
and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Skip down now to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Today, Jesus is challenging all of us to examine our own spiritual disciplines, our own religious practices. And he's challenging us to consider the different types of spiritual disciplines that we practice or that we don't practice. He's challenging us to consider the audience for which we do these practices. And he's challenging us to consider the rewards that await those who do it in righteousness. And so let's look and see. First, Jesus helps us to examine the types of spiritual disciplines. First one, he starts out saying, beware or pay attention to practicing your righteousness. In much of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling us to a new righteousness, a a kingdom righteousness. He starts out by giving us a righteous understanding of happiness, which he calls the Beatitudes. And then he gives us a right understanding, a righteous understanding of how we engage with the world, being distinct like salt and pervasive like light. And then he gives us a righteous understanding of how we interpret the law, which is not merely external, but in the depth of our heart. And here Jesus is calling us to a righteous understanding of our religious practices or what we call spiritual disciplines. And Jesus highlights three of them that were pillars in the Jewish faith. In verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy. In verse 5, when you pray. In verse 16, when you fast. Now notice here, this is very important. Jesus does not say, if you give to the needy. Jesus does not say, if you pray. Jesus does not say if you fast, but he says, when you do these things, this means that Jesus is assuming that these practices are happening in the faith of those that are following him and in the faith of us here today. And so I want to take a moment to highlight these practices and a few other spiritual disciplines that are laid out in scripture. The first practice Jesus highlights is giving to the needy. Now we may not commonly think of this as a religious practice or a spiritual discipline. But if you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, you will see that the poor are near to the heart of God. There are many verses I could point to. Deuteronomy 15, 11, the Lord says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Leviticus 19.10, he says, Do not go over your vineyards a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now, what does it look like in our context in Green Bay, Wisconsin, to give to the needy? Well, for some of us, it may mean financially giving to a reputable foundation like the Transformation House or Freedom House, or New Community Shelter. 
This may also mean sponsoring a child through Compassion International, or it may also mean helping a person that you know is in poverty. Of course, you have to be careful and wise, but God calls us to be generous. But this, is, doesn't, this means more than just giving money. This is more than financial. It means giving food to those that are in need. It means giving education to those who need it. It means giving training or simply giving of your time and love to people that are marginalized by society. Jesus says that we are to give to the poor. Secondly, he points out praying. Now, praying is not super complicated. It's simply talking to your heavenly father. We can do this through extended times of prayer and silence and solitude, but also throughout the day, even as we drive in the car, whatever we're doing, to pray without ceasing. Jesus is going in next week to give us a template for prayer. One of the, one of the templates I like to use is the acronym ACTS. Maybe you've heard of it, A-C-T-S. Adoration, praising God for who he is, his majesty, his might. C, confessing our sin, repenting over the ways we have turned from God. T is thanksgiving, giving thanks for the specific blessings in our life. And S, supplication, which means making requests be made known to God. And so just as frequent communication with a spouse or a family member is vital to a healthy relationship, frequent communication with God is vital for a relationship, a healthy relationship with him. The third thing Jesus points out is fasting. In the Old Testament, believe it or not, I was kind of surprised by this. There's actually only one day a year that God commands the people to fast, and that's the Day of Atonement. He encourages them to consider fasting as a spiritual discipline on their own many different times of the year, but there's only one time of the year that he encourages the whole nation to fast, and it's the Day of Atonement from sunup to sundown. But fasting was such a profound part of the faith that fasting is actually mentioned more times in the Bible than heaven itself. And so we see things like Jesus fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. Even the Pharisees fast twice a week. Jesus says that his disciples, once he is gone, will fast. Now, typically we think of fasting, we think of, of, of taking ourselves away from food or taking food away from us. And typically that is the case, but the Bible also mentions other forms of fasting. It mentions fasting from marital intimacy when agreed upon by both spouses and only for a time. You see, fasting is when we give up something that is good, not something that is bad. It, it, always, it always makes me chuckle when we get around Lent and you hear friends saying, you know what, for Lent, I'm going to give up getting trashed. And it's like, what? Like, you should give that up anyways. Or I'm going to give up, I'm going to give up cussing, or I'm going to give up skipping church. I'm going to start going to church or whatever it might be. And you're like, that's, that's not fasting. That's repenting. Like you should be doing that anyways. When we fast, we are called to fast from something that is good, a good gift from God in order to remember that God is the ultimate good gift. Fasting the Bible is almost always coupled with prayer and it has many purposes. Sometimes it is used to grieve. Sometimes it is to grieve over the brokenness of the world. Sometimes fasting is used to repent over sin and turn to the Lord. We see this with Nineveh in the Old Testament. Sometimes fasting is used to discern God's will. We see this in the New Testament, the book of Acts, as they are choosing elders for the church. But most significantly, 
fasting is used to grow in intimacy with God. And so Jesus highlights these three, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. But there are also more spiritual disciplines. I'm just going to walk through these very quickly. Donald Whitney, who wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, lists out different spiritual disciplines that are in Scripture. And it's very important that we understand that we don't do these practices to earn God's love, but we do these practices because we have been loved by God and we want to grow in intimacy with God. And so the spiritual disciplines Whitney lists out include studying and treasuring God's word in our heart. That means hearing it preached from the pulpit, studying it for ourselves and our devotionals and groups, memorizing it and capturing it in our heart. Prayer, which we just talked about, but also through silence and solitude. Worship, gathering together on Sundays to give God the praise that he is due. Evangelism, sharing the good news of Christ with others. Serving, costly giving of your time and your talents to be Jesus' hands and feet to the world. Stewardship, including giving up your time and your money, excuse me, as well as fasting, which we have also talked about. Now, these are spiritual disciplines laid out in Scripture. And as you hear this list, my guess is for many of us, these, some of these disciplines seem very ordinary to us. We actually do them on a regular basis. They seem very easy. But others of these seem almost extreme to us and seem difficult to us. But God has given us all of these disciplines as a gift of grace to conform us into the image of Jesus, both in our character, but more importantly, in our relationship with him. Trish and I are training for a half marathon. I'm not going to make it if I leave this thing on. We're training for a half marathon. That's in two weeks. And so pray for us. Um, I need more prayer than she does. It's no problem for her. She'll just go out, run 14 miles. I'm like, what are you doing? You haven't run all week. Eh, she can just do it. You know, the hardest part of running or the hardest part of training for a half marathon is training for a half marathon. It takes discipline. It takes determination. It takes planning to shape your body into the body of a half marathon runner. You see, I'm so good at making excuses when it comes to running. For example, two weeks ago, the last week of my sabbatical, I said, you know, I'm going to take the rest of the week off. My dad and his wife are here. We're at the lake house, and it's the end of my sabbatical. So I'm just going to take a break, and I'll pick it up next week. Well, then I pledged myself to run every day of the week except Friday, take a break, and then do a long run on Saturday. And it started off well. Monday, I got up early, and I went for a run. Tuesday, I woke up early, went for a run. Wednesday, I started talking myself out of it. I said, you know, today's my day off. I really want to sleep in, and if I sleep in, it will get hot later in the day, and I don't want to be too hot, so I don't know if I want to go. Plus, I played softball last night, and that's kind of like exercise. You know, I mean, you sit there a lot, but it's kind of like exercise, and, and you know, I, I, I need to go do a lot of housework, and I don't have my energy for that, so I'm just going to pass, but I'll do it tomorrow. And so Thursday comes, and I wake up at 545, which if you know me, that's the middle of my deep sleep cycle. Um, but I wake up because I have to teach a class at 7. And so I wake up, and I probably roll out of bed about 5.55, and I go downstairs, and I get my stuff on, and I get ready to get out the door finally. And as I'm walking down the street, I turn the corner, and I hear our sprinkler system go off in the background. And it just rained. 
So I thought, oh, I better go back and turn it off. So I go back, and I go in the basement. I turn on the sprinkler system. I come back upstairs. I look at the clock. It's like 10 after 7, and I'm thinking, I could really only do two miles. And if it's two miles, it's not even really worth it. So I'm just going to stay and drink my coffee, do quiet time, eat breakfast, and go to class. And so that's what I did. You see, I'm so good with coming up with excuses to not do what's good for me. These spiritual disciplines act much in the same way. We are so good at creating excuses. We say things like, I'm too busy to do this, which is code, by the way, to say, I don't want to make it a priority over other things in my life. That's what that means when you say I'm too busy. Or we'll say things like, you know, if I, don't, if I can't do it with my whole heart, I don't want to do it at all. But the very reason why we practice these spiritual disciplines is because we are half-hearted people. That's why we do them, to draw our hearts closer to God. And so as we consider these spiritual disciplines, I would encourage you to identify your wimpy excuses. Identify the things that you use to not practice these disciplines. Because God gives us these disciplines as a gift of his grace. So those are the different practices of spiritual discipline. Also is the audience of spiritual discipline. As important as it is to know the practices of various types of spiritual discipline, the major thrust of Jesus' sermon in this passage today is the audience for which we practice these spiritual disciplines. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, this verse has commonly been misunderstood to communicate that we never practice our faith in public, that we always hide our faith and we don't show anybody else. The problem with this is Jesus. Jesus made known that when he went into the wilderness for 40 days, he fasted. He told the disciples. That's how we have it in the scripture. We see many records of Jesus helping the poor. and We see many records of, of Jesus uh, uh, going for a time of prayer, even times where Jesus is praying in public. In the New Testament in Acts, we see public praying. And so, so this doesn't mean that we are supposed to hide all our religious practices. Jesus even says in the chapter prior, at the beginning of the Sermon Mount, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And so if Jesus is not saying that we cannot practice our faith in the view of others, what is Jesus saying? Let's look a bit closer. Verse 1 again, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And then here it is in order to be seen by them. You see, Jesus is not primarily concerned with who sees your religious practices. Jesus' primary concern is what audience are you doing these for? Verse 2, he goes on, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. You've heard the phrase, don't toot your own horn. That's where this comes from. Jesus is saying, don't give to be seen by others. Now, I know most of us would not strike up the band when we drop something in the offering plate, but how does this apply to our life? Well, I think there are more subtle ways that we try to make our giving known to other people. Maybe we take pictures of of serving at a shelter and we put them on Facebook so that we can get a like from people. Maybe we take our picture of the child we sponsor in Africa and we prominently display it on the refrigerator so that all can see and know how good we are. Maybe we wear our mission trip t-shirts or our counselor t-shirts or our Bible college t-shirts in order 
to gain a reputation among other people. Again, Jesus is not warning us of giving giving in public or doing our spiritual disciplines in public. Jesus is warning us about practicing it for the purpose of receiving praise from others. Now, Jesus, believe it or not, goes even deeper. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What Jesus is saying is that not only should you not do your good works for the praise of others, you should not even do it for the praise of yourself. You know, something that is so tempting is to serve others for a simple purpose of serving ourselves. Do you know what I mean? We can serve others and help others so that we feel good about ourselves. Maybe it, it, it adds value to us. We don't even have to tell anyone else, but it makes us feel good to serve others. And so we do it really not for them, not for God, but we do it for ourselves. And Jesus is warning us against this. And then Jesus goes on and he starts throwing the word secret around a lot. Look with me if you would. Verse four, he says, so that your giving may be in secret. Verse five, he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues, that they may be seen by others. That's their audience, other people. He says, verse six, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And then verse 16, he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces for who? That their fasting may be seen by others. And then in verse 17, he says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. In this passage, Jesus is encouraging us to a secret faith. Now remember, practicing your faith in public like Jesus did is not wrong and it's not sinful. But yet here Jesus is encouraging us to practice our faith in secret. And the question is, why? I think Pastor Kevin DeYoung hits the nail on the head when he says, secrecy safeguards our sincerity. Do you hear that? Secrecy safeguards our sincerity. In other words, you can practice your faith before others. Temptation to do it for them, to do it for the visible audience that you can see. But if you practice your spiritual disciplines without telling anybody else, then it safeguards you from seeking out the approval of others and doing it for God alone. All of life. All of our religious practices, whether public or private, are not to be done for the accolades of people, but they are to be done for the praise and glory of God alone. I remember after 9-11, I started listening to more talk shows because I wanted to hear what was going around in the nation. And there was this one talk show that was throwing this rally. And the purpose of the rally, I believe, was to raise support to give to uh, families who had lost a loved one, particularly firefighters and policemen, and to help support them and, and have a college fund and things of that nature. And one gene company, I can't remember the name of the company, but one gene company put in a sizable donation. And so the radio program contacted them and said, hey, would you like to give your banner? Would you please send us your banner so that we can hang it up at the rally and people can see that you are supporting this? And so a few weeks go by and they get a package in the mail and they take out the note and the note simply says, you know, we talked it over as a company and we decided this would be the most fitting banner to hang. And out they pulled the American flag 
with no logos on it, no advertising on it, simply the American flag. And I wonder if they did this because they wanted to make sure in their own hearts they weren't doing it for their own accolades. See, they gave this banner not to promote themselves, but to promote somebody else. This company was so moved with gratitude and compassion for those who had given the ultimate sacrifice that they wanted to give the glory to another. Friends, Jesus warns us very directly. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. Who is the audience of your religious practices? When you give to the poor, do you drop it in on Facebook or in a conversation? When you fast, do you somehow mention it in passing conversation? Guess what? Could you pray for me? I'm fasting. I really appreciate that. When you pray, do you seek to impress others? Oh, Lord, thy God. When you serve, do you obsessively wait for acknowledgement? And if you don't get it, grow bitter and angry. A secret faith safeguards the audience of our faith. So we've covered the practices of spiritual discipline, the audience of spiritual discipline, finally, the rewards of spiritual discipline. In spiritual If spiritual disciplines take intentionality, if they take effort, if they even take sacrifice, why should we do them? (laughs) Why should we go out of our way to practice these things? What is the reward? What is the benefit? Well, according to Jesus, there are two possible rewards. And the reward you received is based on the audience that you do it for. So in verse 2, Jesus says that if you give to the needy with trumpets blowing, You do it that they may be praised by others. And then he says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse five, he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Same sentence as before. And then we see it again down in verse 16. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their faces may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Do you see what Jesus is admitting here? Jesus is admitting that if you do religious practices to be seen by other people, you will be seen by other people. If you do religious practices to receive kudos or likes or accolades from other people, you will receive those things but you will not receive the greater reward. Look in verse one again. Jesus says, beware of your practicing your righteousness before the other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Jesus is making it crystal clear that if your audience is other people, you forfeit a reward from God. But if your audience is God and not man, Jesus gives this glorious and mysterious promise. Verse 4, he says, So that you give, giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6, Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 18, That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
See, the audience you live for is the audience that will reward you. If you live for man, you will be rewarded by men. But if you live for God, you will be rewarded by God himself. Now, here is the big question. Why should we live for God and not for men? Why is living for an audience of one invisible God better than living for an audience of many visible people? What is so much better about God's reward than man's reward? What we see here is that the reward of God is greater than the reward of men. The reward of men is that they take pleasure in us. But the reward of God is that we take pleasure in him. A couple months ago, we threw a birthday party for my daughter, Carissa. She was turning seven. And she wanted a soccer party. And so we decided to go all in. And I made up these little flyers. Took me a couple hours. And we put in there the time, the day, all that information. Put even a little cute picture of her saying, I'm number one in her soccer outfit. There's a soccer ball on it. And we handed it out to many of her friends. And then we get to the big day and we have it all planned out. Trisha is going to run the soccer game in the back and I'll have the slip and slide going in the front because it's a very hot day. And then we bring the kids in and we, we had set up all these crafts so they can make necklaces for themselves and take them home as party favors. We served pizza. We served cake and ice cream that Trisha, well, Trish made the cake. We also had these little popcorn balls that we sent home as party favors. And we did all of this and it was a joy to do it. But we did not do it to get the accolades of other people. We didn't do it so that little seven-year-old girls would say, Mr. Dan, you are so great at throwing birthday parties. We didn't do it so that the parents would say, wow, this is a great party. It was a joy to do those things because it showed our little girl, Carissa, how much we cherished her and allowed us to facilitate a place where others could cherish her as well and see her as the gift from God that she is. See, here's the point. If you live your life seeking the reward of the accolades of men, you will receive it. You will get it from time to time. But your soul will never be satisfied. And the reason you will never be satisfied is because you were created for a greater reward. You were created for God himself, and nothing else will satisfy your soul. If you are tired of seeking out the acceptance and praise of men, that's because you were created to live for the pleasure and glory of God. And not only that, you were created to take pleasure in the glory of God, to cherish him, and to point others to the one that you cherish. Matthew 5, 16, the verse I read earlier that Jesus mentions earlier in the sermon, he says, let your shine before others so that they may see your good works. And then here it is. And give glory to your father who is in heaven. This is our greatest joy that God would be exalted in our hearts and the hearts of those around us. You see, when we live for the glory of God alone, we are not only conformed into the image of God, but we also grow in intimacy of God. And best of all, we grow in our cherishing and enjoyment of God. And so I want to make sure that this is crystal clear. The reward for living for God alone is God alone. And that is enough. That is more than enough. That is greater than any other gift you could ever receive. Let me end with this. When Trish and I first met, we were actually in it. We met at a, at a Christian camp. We were serving over in uh, Minnesota on the far west side. 
And when we got there, the first few days, the counselors were hanging out. And, and I don't know how else to explain, but Trisha was crazy. Like she was, she was like if you gave a, sh- a squirrel sugar and shoved them in a cage, that's kind of what she was like. She was just really crazy. I found out later it's because it was the first time that she had uh, been away from school in several years. And so she was kind of letting loose. But I actually said, I said, I have to meet the man that marries her because I cannot imagine who could stay up with that girl. God has a great humor, doesn't he? So we were there for a month. And to be honest with you, um, when I first met Trish, I didn't have a huge romantic interest in her. And one reason was because my bunkmate, we'll call him Joe, uh, liked Trish and he lived by her. And so throughout this month, I'm going, Trish, you need to, this guy Joe is amazing, isn't he? Isn't he so cool? I love being around him. He's great. And I'm trying to help Trisha and Joe connect with one another. Well, what I did not know is that during this month, Trisha liked me. And I had no idea of it. And so I'm here trying to promote Joe and Joe and Trisha like me. And so there we are, and we're winding down the last week, and, and I'm washing down some screens, and Trish comes around the corner to help me wash screens. And then I thought to myself, I failed. She doesn't like Joe. She likes me, and I didn't even know it. Well, the last night we get there, and I remember me, Trish, and Joe were sitting in the kitchen. It was so awkward. And um, we're eating cereal, and, and Joe decides to go to bed. And then Trish and I say, okay, it's time to turn in for the night. And this would be our, we said our final goodbyes. And then we walked and she walked up the stairs to go to uh, the girl's bunk room. And I remember she gets to the top of the steps and there's a landing and she gets on the landing and she turns to walk to the bedroom. And uh, really, I would never see her again. And as she turned to walk, I said, you want to go for a walk? And of course she goes, Sure. And as they say, the rest is history. The reason I have the privilege of cherishing Trisha Lynn Gunderson, now Jackson, is because Trisha Lynn first cherished me. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. The only reason you can cherish God through these spiritual disciplines is because God first cherished you. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He's living for God. But then he says this, who loved me and gave his life for me. You see, the reason we can cherish God is because God has first cherished us. He cherished us so greatly that as we were running away from him, he sent his only son, his only son to earth to come to rescue us to claim us as his own. You see, Jesus is the only man to ever live, to never live for other people, but for God alone. And Jesus, the sinless one, took our sin and our punishment upon the cross and then rose on the third day to give us new life and his righteousness. Jesus came on a rescue mission to die on the cross so that God could bring to himself that which he cherishes, which is you. which is you and me. Friends, these spiritual disciplines are a grace given to us by God, not to earn his love, but to cherish the one who first cherished you.
Lord, I confess these have slidden in priority in my life, Lord. And I have so many great excuses for why. Forgive me. Forgive us. Forgive anyone here who could say the same. Thank you, God, that you cherish us. And Lord, with our half-heartedness, pray that we would engage in these spiritual disciplines, not to earn your love, but to grow in our love for you and grow in intimacy with you and to be cherished, to know how much you cherish us and to cherish you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.